Hi, I'm Nicole Davidson, and this is the Negotiation in Real Life podcast, the show where we take the lessons learned in real life negotiations to help you build your negotiation toolkit. We'll be hearing from lawyers, entrepreneurs, and senior business people about their best and worst negotiations. Negotiation is one of the most important skills for success in business and in life, but it's a skill we are rarely taught. For many of us, we develop our skills purely through trial and error. We see what works, discard what doesn't, and if we're lucky, we'll have a few good mentors along the way. In this podcast, we're going to give you access to an even greater range of negotiation mentors. Enjoy this episode and please reach out if you have any questions. In this episode of Negotiation in Real Life, I speak with James Dapache. James is a corporate and commercial litigator with Chamberlain's Law Firm and is based in Sydney. While knowledge is all well and good, approachability is fundamental to James's practice. Whether he's before a judge, dealing with an opponent, assisting a colleague or advising a client, he prides himself on making sure the right message gets through. His approachability, combined with his knowledge, sees James regularly recognised as a prominent member of the legal profession. James uses his skills to help companies, trusts and partnerships and the people in and around them to protect and where necessary project their interests. This will often involve court work where James is equally happy on his feet before the judge or serving as part of a team along with a barrister or two. In 2018, James kicked off a revolutionary series of videos called Coffee and a Case Note, giving casual, brief reports on recent legal cases over a cup of coffee. The series continues to this day. He also actively manages a YouTube channel, Instagram page, Twitter account, Facebook page, TikTok page, and a podcast sharing knowledge about recent decisions. In his off time, you might find James recording his horror movie podcast, Spooko, or reminiscing about the days when he used to make rap music. In our conversation, we talk about aggression as one of the key errors in negotiation, the space for emotion in negotiations, the role of authenticity in negotiation, the importance of knowing who you're negotiating with, the timing of when to mediate, and what to expect of a good mediator, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. So welcome to the show, James. Many, many thanks, Nicole. Really appreciate you having me. Good fun. It's absolute pleasure. I've seen many of your coffee and a case note videos, so it's a delight to have you as the one answering questions today. Well, the fact you didn't fall asleep during them, Nicole, speaks um, speaks highly of your generous approach. So (laughs) So I appreciate it very much. It's very kind of you. Excellent. So, James, as I've mentioned, you are the producer of Coffee and a Case Note, which I found a really interesting series around cases in the oppression and shareholder disputes area, which is an area close to my heart. But perhaps before we start talking about some of the negotiations that you've done in that space, do you want to just give a brief overview of who you are and what you do for our listeners? Yeah. So uh, thank you, Nicole. Look, I'm a commercial litigator based, um, I say based in Sydney. I commute from the Central Coast. Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, I'm very fortunate to have a couple of days working from home. So I sort of say based in Sydney. And when we say commercial litigation, these days I'm fortunate enough to be quite focused into, I think the practice group name is corporate disputes, but essentially um, director, shareholder type stuff with a bit of trustee beneficiary type stuff with a bit of partnership type stuff thrown in uh, and occasionally just a fairly blunt sort of uh, cudgels out type 
piece of commercial litigation arguing about a contract or a deal gone wrong, that sort of thing. But very much in the sort of corporate governance slash corporate ownership dispute space. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I practice at a firm called Chamberlain's. I think we call ourselves national, but uh, there's there's sort of four offices and we do have Perth and Sydney. So there's sort of a coast to coast element, but I suspect national is a bit more aspirational than uh, genuine, but we've got four offices. We're sort of a Canberra firm at heart um, that is sort of expanding out um, through the country at the moment. And it's a fabulous place to work and a fabulous place to negotiate from, Nicole. Excellent. So very fortunate. Very fortunate. Excellent. Well, that's a lovely segue because what I think I'd like to do is start, as I said, um, these sort of shareholder and corporate disputes are an area close to my heart as a commercial mediator. Um, from your experience in these sort of disputes, what are some of the biggest mistakes you've seen people make in their negotiations? You know, perhaps even before they've come to you, where do you see things go wrong? I think it's the classic example, surely, Nicole, of aggression. Mm. Um, and there's nothing that is further from a commercial outcome than aggression. It's okay to be grumpy. It's okay to keep your cards close to your chest. It's okay to be a little guarded. But when you bump into, um, from time to time, a practitioner, but, but quite often the parties themselves, but it's, it's especially unproductive from a practitioner who wants to start banging fists on the table and uh, making criticisms, which may or may not be justified. But in the context of a negotiation, and I should say that it's almost always mediation for me when I talk negotiation, Nicole, it's, it's, yep. it's almost always a sort of mediated dispute. Um, or, or very often that. The moment things edge into um, aggression, uh, it sort of means you're now speaking to someone who's taking an emotional position. I don't say that critically, but I do say that the more emotional your decision-making, the less commercial your decision-making, and so the further we are from a deal. So I think that mistake is one that I see happen often. Nicole, would that be consistent with the sort of, sort of goofs, the sort of uh, beginner's error that you might bump into? That aggression and that sort of adversarial nature of things is certainly one of the things that I struggle with managing in the negotiations as a mediator because, as you said, it's not really productive when you're fighting each other. So that sort of sense of ego and entitlement does get in the way. The thing that I'm very conscious of saying, though, is there has to be room in the mediation for that, not necessarily aggression, but certainly room for emotion. And, you know, I often describe these corporate disputes as a bit like business divorce. So I I see myself as a a business divorce mediator. And if you don't let them get their emotion out, and this is from the parties, certainly I don't want to see aggression from the um, representatives. That's not as helpful. But if you can actually let the, the shareholders or the business owners get out their negative emotion and put it out on the table so they feel heard, I actually think that's a really important part of the process. You see sometimes solicitors shutting that down, going, hang on, let's just be commercial here. And it's like, well, sometimes you can't get to that commerciality until you've got past that. I don't know. I'd be interested to see what you think. That's a bit of a trigger for me, Nicole, when, when mediators want to talk directly to my clients without, <laughs> without, without me in the middle. So hearing you say that, I'm like, Nicole, you don't, you, don't, you don't talk to my client. I talk to my client. But no, I think that's very wise because in the disputes that you and I would see, um, there's often, uh, look, we're not reinventing the wheel or sending a spaceship to the moon, but um, there's sometimes disputes that can have a number of moving parts. And no matter how effective and productive your negotiation, um, there can often be space to just reignite things if 
if the parties sort of decide that that's what they'd like to do. So I think your approach has great wisdom and it makes me sort of want to add a bit of a gloss to my earlier comment to confirm that um, while aggression is something we should stay away from, I think there is an authenticity, sort of volunteering, sharing a little bit of yourself rather than just presenting a mask or presenting a shell or presenting a performance that I think is quite, quite necessary because you can only negotiate with someone you know. And if you're just speaking with someone who's putting on a performance, then you have that uncomfortable feeling that you know happens in interpersonal relationships as well that you're not really engaging with someone, you're just butting heads against uh, an act that someone has learned to put on years ago. That's so important, James, that idea about authenticity. And for me, the work that I do before we get everybody in the room in the mediation is super important in these sorts of disputes. And, you know, it's actually having that pre-mediation meeting with the parties to figure out where they're at, not just at a commercial perspective, but also at an emotional perspective to figure out what messages it is that they need to convey to the other side. You know, they need to get something off their chest and helping them come up with ways to actually express that that is perhaps more productive than they might do without a bit of coaching. So that's a big part, particularly in these disputes. I think it's less relevant in a contract dispute or something, but, you know, still can be useful. Um, But I think in these business disputes um, where you've often got people who have longstanding relationships and maybe even have been best friends for a while until they got into business together, helping them have those difficult conversations is an important part of the process. I think that's very wise and very, very good advice. Just speaking from a practitioner perspective, I like to have a relationship with my opponent and you won't enjoy the use of the word opponent. I'm sure Nicole, you'll say, oh, your colleague, your collaborator, but I'll just say opponent as a shorthand for the way I think about it. I, I, I like for that to be a person you know, with whom I've at least spoken on the phone and with whom I've at least said, uh, hey there, uh, hoping we can do a deal. Let's see how we go. And to hear them say, yes, yes, maybe we can. Let's all try to be commercial about it. You, you, you know, I would at least want a good three or four or five or six minute exchange um, ahead of time with whoever my opposite number is going to be in order just to have the most basic of basic, um, I guess rhythms is a weird word to choose, but but that's what's popped into my head. Just, just a little bit of a rhythm for how offers might be exchanged, how the dispute itself might be described, and how um, the differing positions might be understood in the context of trying to get these people to uh, hold hands and, uh, well, hold hands for a moment and then divorce, yeah. <laughs> as you say, Nicole, at the end. You know, sometimes you get them to hold hands and they can save the marriage. I think it depends a lot on what stage people have been when it comes to me as to whether we can get that resolved or not. So You deserve a medal, Nicole, if you can manage that. Well, in, I think in the, my the, the ones, and, and this is where, you know, my, my personal soapbox is about early intervention mediation. So my thing is that once you bring the lawyers in, you know, and I love lawyers, I married a lawyer, but I stopped being one myself, partly because once you bring the lawyers in, the lawyer's job is to act in the best interests of their client. Now, I think most lawyers or many lawyers think of the best interests as the best legal interests of the client and are protecting their legal position. I tend to take a more holistic view of best interests and it's about the overall best interests of the clients, of which the legal position is is one. But, you know, the very nature of the legal system and the adversarial nature means if you are protecting your client's legal interests, you are 
burying information or, you know, refraining from sharing anything that you don't absolutely have to share. And it really goes against everything that fits into an interest-based or collaborative negotiation process. And so that's where, to me, being able to have those more open discussions at an early stage because, you know, I think once people have started spending money on lawyers, once people have been given a really good view of their case from the lawyers, and we know that, you know, there's research that tells us that lawyers are overly optimistic on assessing their chances of success Not in lawyers, a case. Well, so, it's funny. So I mean, lawyers, so. they're, they're the most pessimistic people in the community, except for this one time. You know, they're more likely to to go, your case is all rosy. Until they get to mediation, they go, well, maybe it's not quite as solid as we thought it was. And that makes it harder to get to settlement. So I think, you know, the earlier you bring a mediator in to really facilitate that process and manage all of those different elements, in my biased opinion, Mm. you know, the the more likelihood you've got of, of being able to preserve or manage that relationship, whether they stay in business or not is a different question, but at least they might still be speaking to each other. I think that's very wise for for a couple of points. Firstly, two points on the lawyers issue. Firstly, um, lawyers, you will have worked through those legal issues and the best legal interests um, in your head as you're advising your client. And part of that is chasing down rabbit holes. And part of that is boxing in shadows or whatever other cliche we want to employ. We're thinking about all the things that could go wrong. Uh, what the likelihood of things going right are, whether your witness is going to crumble in cross-examination or not, uh, whether they're going to make an application to amend their statement of claim because at the moment it's a bit crap. Uh, If they do that, how hard are you going to resist and what the judge in this area is generally going to think? Ding, 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 ding. You're sort of doing this probabilistic thing that is necessarily inaccurate because you're just dealing with probability. So you're sitting there where someone says, is a million bucks a good offer? And my answer has to be, well, <laughs> here's what might happen if we don't. Bang, 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 bang. And it's a sort of half answer, right? Like, like it's it's a sort of, well, if we win at final hearing, you might get two million. And if we lose, you might have to pay them one million. And uh, yeah, so a million, I guess, is somewhere between you, you, you know, you, you sort of have to have to manufacture some sort of decision-making matrix. Secondly, having just raised numbers, I think cost is an important point because once you get lawyers involved. If you're going to get a matter of the kind I'm involved with to mediation, people have spent at least, let's say, at least $50,000 and possibly very substantially more, occasionally slightly less. Um, And there may be a forensic accountant's report in there uh, and there may be some barristers' fees that have gone out as well uh, and there may be any number of other fees. So, So people have spent a lot of money getting there. They're, with the greatest of respect to you, Nicole, they're not, the mediator's not there for free. No. <laughs> We're a lot and, cheaper than you guys, though. Yes, yes. Well, sometimes, sometimes. That's, a, that's, that's another discussion for another day. And so there's this sunk cost, right, once yes. you get lawyers involved um, and especially if you get litigators involved. So sometimes I can imagine a commercial lawyer who's almost a sort of um, outsourced general counsel type who might be a kind of, business consultant as much as a lawyer that sort of lawyer get involved could be useful and could be quite cheap but once you get your litigators in the money's ticking over so that's a concern with getting lawyers involved and that sort of leads to that other issue you raised of like well so is early intervention mediation the thing and i think i need to push back on you a bit just in my very small area of experience nicole because i've only been to actually genuinely one mediation that has been 
before litigation was commenced. And I was for the plaintiff, which is to say I was for the person who said- Would have been the plaintiff. Yeah, yeah. Who would have been the plaintiff who was saying they were short of money, right? And we'd got a silk involved and got a good senior junior involved and there'd still been lots and lots of money spent beforehand. And our position paper, and Nicole, you you, you probably talk about position papers a fair bit. Um, And for anyone who's who's unfamiliar, your position paper is, is what it sounds like. So before a mediation, you send through a document to the mediator and to the other side to say, hey, look, we think we've got a good claim because one, two, three, um, you're crap, you're crap, go home, go home. But we're going to come in the commercial best interest and have a good faith negotiation, essentially. And our position paper was draft pleadings, right? The document that would start off court proceedings. And so we were sending it through to be like, hey, look, we're here to negotiate. If it doesn't go well, we're going to go file this with court tomorrow. This was a complex matter that was later sort of the subject of three years of litigation. And the other side's response was a little better than derisive. Without the threat of the litigation being on foot, without the cost risk of being dragged um, into a different state in this example, and without the stakes being upped past, you know, a Word document essentially saying, oh, we're going to file this Word document, look out. It struck me that there was not enough pressure on the other side for them to properly engage in the discussion. And so it's it's really scarred me for that approach, Nicole. And, and, and so I'm happy to share that with you and your listeners. What happened in that case then, James? It obviously mm. didn't settle at mediation. No, it didn't. Did it go to court? Did your client find the cash to go to court or did they have to walk away from the dispute? Uh, the former and through the passage of it, I didn't have carriage of it till the end. Through the passage of it, our client... Apparently, my former client apparently expressed that if only I had accept what I considered to be a derisive offer, you, you, you know, in the in the pre-litigation, because they're sitting there having incurred tens of thousands of dollars without even getting to court, and they saw what they thought was a derisive offer and said, "Oh no, no," and two and a half years later, three years later, having spent a considerable amount more, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, that offer that they turned down all those years ago suddenly looked a lot more appealing. So, well, this think- is this is my problem with these because I hear this story yeah. time and time again, and yours is not an isolated incident. And this is where you know, once again, it comes down to me because I I do negotiation not just in the mediation context, but I teach people how to how to negotiate generally. And this to me is a classic case of having to really consider your batna or your best alternative to a negotiated agreement because you've got to factor in that impact of the costs and the stress. And, you know, with all respect to lawyers, I think they often either don't or are unable to paint that picture for the client of really what this is going to look like. And this to me is a good mediator will come in and actually help the lawyer do that in a way that is very respectful to the lawyers. But actually, I think, you know, hearing it from a couple of people and, you know, I don't know what all mediators do. I think there's really, you know, like with lawyers, there's some good ones, some bad ones, some excellent ones, and some really ones that you'd never want to come across. The thing for me is about really, and I, and I say this to clients coming into mediation, I will make sure before you leave the room that you have thought about all the important things in getting to a negotiated outcome today so that you've got the best chance of coming up with something you can live with and be able to put the, the dispute aside or knowing if you go forward that you're absolutely doing the best thing so that you don't have regrets a couple of years down the track. 
Well, yeah, what's that What's that line that a good deal is one where both sides are slightly cheesed off? Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, if everyone's leaving going, anyway, well, I guess it's over. Blech. That's that's sort of how you want, you, you know, if someone's popping the champagne. Um, oh, then the other party is feeling very, very sad indeed. Exactly. Well, and, and then you risk the deal falling over because somebody gets, you know, and, and you've you see that occasionally where the response to somebody at that point when you get to agreement mm. is such that the other person goes, no, no, made a mistake. That's not happening anymore. Well, it's interesting when you talk about the range of skill sets in mediators. Um, I will not be alone um, in New South Wales in saying that for anyone who did estate, estate litigation or, or what, what used to be called family provision work, um, Graham Berrickry, who very sadly passed away a couple of years ago, was the guy. And, you know, if you had a private, you know, if you had a mediation set down, you would just wait for one of Graham's dates. You know, <laughs> the convenience of the parties wouldn't arise because he was a former registrar in this area and he had a very good command of the law. Yep. And as you know better than most, Nicole, because claims like this are or were at the time, essentially every player gets a prize. And the question is, what's the, what's the number Graham would have a very good feel of sitting down and reading a, you know, a quote, quote, greedy plaintiff, the riot act, or having a fairly stern chat to a recalcitrant defendant. And depending on what side you were on, you're probably pretty, pretty grateful for Graham bringing some reality to it. And then you have your less impressive mediators who, despite, um, you know, despite post nominals or despite experience or despite charge out rates will be quite hands off. And be like, oh, well, the parties will let me know if there's a deal to be done. And I've made my opening address and I'm just going to get a cup of tea mm-hmm. and sit in my mediator's room. And if anyone needs me, they know where to find me. Um, so I think that 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 degree of expertise and excellence in a mediator is fundamental. And I'm, and I'm pleased you're on top of it. I'm unsurprised. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge you a little bit on that mm. one because you're talking there about expertise in the law. Mm. I actually am quite comfortable to say I am not always the expert in the room on the law, but I'm the expert in the room on the negotiation strategy and asking the right questions about the law. Mm. And because I am a lawyer by background, I will understand what's being discussed, but I'm certainly not the expert. And for me, you know, once again, there's different styles of mediation. There's evaluative, which is what you've described Graham as doing. And that's where you're actually almost stepping in as a quasi judge going, well, you know, let me tell you how this is going to end up, buddies. And they're sort of pummeling the the parties down that line as to where it's going to end up in court, or there's the more facilitative. And once again, it comes down to how you value the law as the way of solving a dispute. Because, you know, and of course, for lawyers, Mm the law is the way to resolve a dispute. It's either right or it's wrong. Yep. Whereas I still sit on the more, you know, generally I tend to be more facilitative. I'm going, yes, this has got to be done in the scope of what the law might say, but we know that there's always uncertainty in the law. It depends on the judge you get on the day. It depends on a whole bunch of different Mm. things and it's expensive. So if you can get something that is acceptable to you, which might not be what you get to in the court, that should be an okay way of descri- of settling this dispute. Yes, uh, I accept that broadly, but I also say that I think you're underrating what I would describe as your expertise, Nicole, which is having been to a million of these, you know, and so you'd be able to talk to my shareholder client. You might not say last week was the decision of Smith and, and Magoo, and that, that's a leading case about, um, you know, uh, a minority discount when you're valuing shares of an oppressed shareholder. I'm not expecting you to say that, but you might say 
uh, you wouldn't believe the number of people I see who blindly reject the first offer without carefully thinking about it or some yeah. you know, common com- common sense bit of not quite advice but mm. you know not 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 far from some mm. some some useful commentary that will assist someone in making a decision so perhaps i was a little blunt or or <laughs> a little a little low on nuance in like in pointing to <laughs> graham's legal expertise because i think it would be um Look, born born from humility, but with the greatest respect, I think it would be a mistake, Nicole, to, to underrate the expertise of mm. an expert mediator, expert negotiation consultant, even if the command of the law is not at their fingertips. Yeah, I, I look, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly, and that's the skill set that the, that a good mediator will bring. You know, and it's it's an understanding of where the law sits, but it's also an understanding of human nature and psychology and. Um, just deals in, you know, business in general and understanding the drivers of certain businesses and how that all works. And, you know, that's that's where I like to think compared to a number of mediators, I bring a bit of a differentiator because I've actually worked in business as an insolvency practitioner, investment banker. So I think, you know, I've got that experience of going, well, this is this is the key drivers that you need to be thinking about in different industries to make these businesses work, what people really care about. And, you know, once again, you've got to get to those underlying interests. What is really important to you here? And it's often not about the money. It's not about, you know, there's often ego, um, but it's also about fairness it's about it's not about the money but it's about the fact that I want to retire in a couple of years time if you can get to those underlying things you certainly get more scope I think that's I, th- I think that's so true and I think if we just focus on on Unicol to him to, to embarrass you for a moment <laughs> that that I think that's where a practice like yours becomes so valuable you and I've spoken off mic before about the way a mediator or a negotiation consultant can be put to use and I think there's a, I might call it an error or, or just there's a, mis, there's a misconception in people like me who say, no, no, mediator comes in after we've, after pleadings have closed and evidence is done, you know, we've done discovery, then we go to the mediator. And that's broadly speaking, quote, quote, correct, but it's also quite limited in its scope. And so one of the examples you and I've spoken about before is your suburban accountant who you know, has the client of Blogs Concreting PTY Limited that has a revenue of 1.5 million a year and just sort of ticks over. The director is in dispute about, you know, the snazzy Hilux and 60 grand, you, you know, being, being, being paid out of the company. And that's a perfect example of a dispute where the moment I step in, costs become disproportionate. And so it's a, so it's a real challenge for lawyers to bring any value. It's a real great example of someone who can have a, commercial, finely calibrated, um, nuanced, engaged response. And I think that's what we're likely to see in the marketplace increasingly is your your mediators, your negotiation consultants who can come in and sidestep lawyers is, is a great way to put myself out of business, but, 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 but perhaps um, specialise our lawyers where they should be, sort of put, put them away to say, look, yeah, lawyers, lawyers, lawyers are great in, in their lane, this is not a good example of where a lawyer could bring the most value. It's about Let's... focusing in those high value disputes for the lawyers, isn't it? And that's fine with me too. So like if we're if we're arguing about, you know, tens of millions of dollars worth of shares, great. My costs are completely proportionate and a hundred percent um, you know, in line with with what the parties would expect to pay. And and I can expect my opponent to be incurring similar fees and being well prepared. 
and not being nervous or apologetic about that because um, that's what the market says. And then when those quantum start to shrink, you know, I've been to a mediation that had about 60 lawyers at it and it was reasonably complex, but you look around the room and the dispute was around somewhere between eight to $15 million. And you sort of think about even just the cost of that day and you start to think, well, there's potentially another way. I don't, I don't know what it is. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm not, not sure I want to rush it. into a mediation with 60 lawyers in the room. But, you know, once again, that doesn't sound to me like the kind of dispute you can expect to resolve in one day at a mediation. And, you know, I, I've got a whole, it might be something for a chat at a different time, but I've got mm. a whole set of beliefs about the mediation process as it's traditionally been done. Because, you know, as you said before, we tend to sort of have this tradition about when we're going to mediate and what it looks like. It's like half a day, full day, you either get there or you're not, bang. Some mediators will do those important pre-mediation conferences. A lot, I believe, don't. But for me, a mediation can be more of a consulting assignment to work alongside the parties to help guide them around what do you need to do next to make this process work? Okay, let's go do that. Have your homework, come back. Let's figure out where we are next. Mm. So that's a whole different scenario. But the other idea that I've got, and I was um, chatting, I think you know Alice Rua from SMB Advisor. Um, Alice is a liquidator up in Brisbane, and I was chatting to her yesterday saying my new idea for 2022 is to disrupt the um, commercial dispute resolution space. And that's mm. because I think, once again, probably for these smaller disputes where the lawyer's fees can tend to be disproportionate is having something that's a little bit like the family dispute resolution um, collaborative practice model. So instead of somebody coming and saying, okay, well, the, the, the plaintiff, we'll call them the plaintiff, you know, one party, instead of them paying their lawyer for a legal opinion and their valuer for valuation and their tax person for the tax consequences of this whole thing and the other person going off and repeating all of that. And, of course, both of them getting opinions from their lawyers and their valuers that support their own proposition is bringing that dispute to a central point who then actually sends out for independent legal opinions and valuations and all of that other thing. Because, once again, I think, you know, you're cutting your costs in half and, you know, hopefully getting an outcome you know, once again, there'll be some people who might not stick to what is there because they decide that they want to get something better. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, I think it's very wise. And I think that it is an area ripe for disruption um, because the way I've explained it being done before is quite linear, quite expensive, often disproportionate and um, quite legalistic. And none of those things are necessarily wrong in and of themselves, but I think what they do do is leave the market for an alternative quite open and available. I, I, and I don't know what the answer is, but but by analogy, I, I had a I've had an interesting couple of calls twice in two months actually from accountants who were looking to come to me because I, I've I've I'm fortunate enough to have built a reputation for being handy with shareholder disputes. Um, director disputes and um, the accountant called to say hey look the directors are falling out and and you know this is the scenario and my initial response was well okay the accountant acts for the company mm -hmm. and the accountant had not quite taken sides but obviously had some sympathy for one of the shareholders and not the other and I said well there are two ways we can cut this one is you can just refer me to the person who's disgruntled and I can, you know, I can get all my, get all my tools out and, and I can go to war and that's fine. But have you considered 
uh, having the company instruct me and essentially I can then just be Q&A. Yeah. And then if anyone has any questions to ask about what Blogsy, what might happen to Blogsy, if, if Blogsy was to launch an impression suit, I'll give that answer and I'll CC Magoo so that both Blogsy and Magoo completely understand what I'm saying. Mm. And if Magoo has a question to ask about what I said to Blogsy, I'll answer that question. And so there's the space I think the accountant didn't do that. And I now act for the disgruntled shareholders. Whereas, whereas what I would have said is yeah. you bring me in to figure out mm. what the hell's going on between these two mm. to see what's actually at the heart of this and whether yeah. it can be resolved. But anyway, so yeah, it's, there's a, there's a brave new world on the horizon, Nicole. And I'm pleased to see so. you're prepared for it. Yeah, I hope good. so. Well, now James moving on, it would be, a very bad interview if I didn't ask you. Have you ever made a significant blooper in a negotiation that you have learnt from? Um, I think I have. Um, and this is where I was uh, acting without a barrister, mm-hmm. which, you know, if we're talking about traditional mediations, the tradition is one solicitor there, you know, one barrister there. It's a very small, yeah, reasonably small estate of only a few hundred thousand dollars, and I thought, well, um, I can't really do this economically, and so I'm going to need to, um, I'm going to need to do this myself. And uh, I was acting for someone quite close to me, which 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 made it complex. Yep. In that negotiation, um, what I failed to do was to track the nuance of emotion, as you referred to. Mm-hmm earlier, Nicole, and I thought, oh, yes, I know how this goes. We're going to exchange some offers. The first offer will be rejected. Their first offer will be rejected. And then the round of second offers will be the first real offers that are made. And so I don't really care what we're going to offer first up. I don't really care what they're going to offer first up. And my recollection of the exchange of offers is that uh, the first one came from them, which uh, I advised uh, my people to reject because it was the first offer and we could certainly get a better deal. Uh, uh, then we made a counter and uh, there was uh, that counter was not accepted and there was no further offer coming from the other side and the mediation finished fairly shortly after that. And I was left to explain, uh, well, why do you always reject the first offer? Because I thought that was a pretty reasonable one. And I had no good answer to that question, Nicole, yeah. apart from reject the first offer because there's a better <laughs> one just around the corner. And so that's that was more than five years ago. That was, I think, it was six or seven years ago now. And it's something that you can tell I can just conjure, conjure straight up how I feel about it. <laughs> still. <laughs> yeah, so it's a pretty serious blooper that, uh, that still lingers with me. And it's interesting because, once again, looking at that, I mean, I think there's one of the things I say is there's never a hard and fast rule in negotiation. If anyone says always do this or always do that, alarm bells ring for me. But the idea for me is to go, well, what's behind that offer? And, you know, digging into where have you come from? What's what's that based around? And where are they thinking? That's where the, the use of the mediator is really important to understand that because, you know, particularly if you've gone into your breakout rooms after that initial session and these offers are being transported via the mediator, um, using them to really go, well, where are we at? You know, how does this play? And, you know, the mediators can add a lot of value there, even to the point I had one the other day where, um, and I've, you know, obviously won't describe too many details, but we literally got to a point where we were fairly close to the midpoint of where the two opening offers had started. 
And they were both nervously going, we know we're going to end up in the midpoint, but nobody wanted to actually yeah, go there. Yeah, yeah. So it was like, you know, they all thought if I go to the midpoint first, I'll be squeezed a bit in the other direction. And um, so I had to really help them get through that difficulty because they were also saying, we're not here to go backwards and forwards a hundred times. We're not going to do it. If the next offer doesn't meet, then that's it. And we were so close. I mean, we'd started a hundred thousand dollars apart and we Mm. were now, I think about $4,000 apart. Oh God! And so it was that whole thing that I then in the mediation was like, so are we looking at, you know, if, if this midpoint was on the table, would you accept it? Mm. And it was only when I got a yes from both of them that I was able to say to somebody, look, I'm pretty confident that if you put this, obviously I can't guarantee it, but mm. I think if you go this way, they might reject it. Obviously do what you like, but here's my thoughts. Mm. And eventually we got someone putting the midpoint on the table and it was like done. Yeah. Um, but you know, each and, and interesting that the clients were inclined to go there. The lawyers were stopping them. That was what I found really interesting. So, you know, yes, both of the clients well had said, hmm. let's just let's just cut the difference. And the lawyers are like, no, 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 don't put that on the table yet. It'll be and you know, it's it's fascinating watching that dynamic. Mm. No, no, no. It's uh salami slicing is how it was described <laughs> to me initially of like, all right, we'll just sit here slicing the salami. You slice yeah. from your end, I'll slice from mine, and we'll basically we'll meet in the middle. There. Yeah. yeah. So look, before we finish up, James, have you got one key tip? If you were if you were talking to somebody, particularly perhaps in in the um the litigation space, what would be mm. your most important negotiation tip for someone? I think I've I've already said my most important one, which I think is that authenticity sort of relationship yeah. point of the try to get to know, even on a, you know, it's great to crack through the superficial level, but but even on a superficial, hello there, nice to meet you sort of uh, level. So so I'll, I'll go to the second level and I think it's preparation and yeah. that, that, that might be a litigator's response. But I think that, if you, as someone who advises someone in, in, in a negotiation or if you who is someone in a negotiation are looking to have a real genuine commercial chat with someone to potentially end up on the other side, um, I don't want you blowing the whole thing up by in the afternoon going, oh, hang on, do I have to pay tax on that or, or, yeah. or whatever it is, you, you know, just some bombshell getting dropped when Nicole's yeah. got the parties really, really close and you go, oh, no, hang on, I have to refinance the you know, refinance the house to pay that. No, maybe yeah. I can't do it. And so, you, you know, and of course, preparation for me means it means something quite, quite different. It's, you know, pre- pre- uh, preparing for the legal outcomes. Mm. But um, arriving at the mediation ready to do a deal, even if, you know, it might, it might hurt, even if you might prefer to fight on, I think preparation would be my suggestion. I love it. It's one of my key tips. As I often have been known to say, James, of your success in a negotiation comes from the work you do before you get to the table. Bravo. So that is a great way to finish off the interview. I'm going to put all of your contact details in the show notes, but Mm. is there anything or anything in particular you'd like to talk about in terms of people who might like to get in touch or um, ways they might want to contact you? Oh, that's very kind, Nicole. Um, look, uh, I'm, I, I run this online uh, marketing project called Coffee and a Case Note um, where I hop on, uh, film a little video of me having a coffee, and I try to summarise a recent decision generally of the New South Wales Supreme Court or Court of Appeal. 
And I try to do it in a way that is approachable. So hopefully I'm someone who you can spend time with um, and that is also rigorous. So it's correct about the law. So if you're interested in having a bit of approachable rigor, as I try to describe it um, in your life, I'm trying to be everywhere. So you can find me on LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitter, Clubhouse, TikTok, uh, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, so if you're inclined to search coffee and a case note, and of course, if there's anything you'd like to chat about, you can uh, you can also search my firm out, Chamberlain's. Uh, I'd love to hear from you. I'm very, very happy to chat. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for your time today, James. I've enjoyed our conversation. I hope you have too. It's been a delight, Nicole. Really, really appreciate your time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Negotiation in Real Life podcast. If you've taken away some great tips from this episode, I'd love to hear about it. So please connect with me via my website or LinkedIn. If you're enjoying the podcast and would like to learn more tips to improve your negotiations, head to our website, nicoledavidsonnegotiation.com.au, where you can follow my blog, view presentations and download resource sheets. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you get every episode as it comes out. If you have an interesting negotiation story that you'd like to share with my audience, head to the website and complete a guest application form. Until the next episode, happy negotiating.